The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. John Fesco. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's bow together for a brief moment of prayer. Father, we are grateful that you are kind and merciful to us. We pray that you would shed the light of your revelation of Christ upon our hearts and illumine us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might read and hear your word to profit to our sanctification and ultimately to the glorification of the triune God. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. In the uh, desire to continue in the the, the faculties uh, series on wisdom literature, particularly from the Old Testament, I ask you to turn to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4, where we will consider for a few moments this morning uh, some of the uh, things that we find herein in the book of Job and hopefully gain some insight into the idea and connections between wisdom, wisdom and suffering, wisdom and suffering. Uh, Let's look at Job chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Beloved in Christ, I think it's easy to say that the book of Job uh, presents one of the most complex labyrinths in the pages of Scripture. Uh, In our day and age where we regularly feast upon tweets, which are very small amounts of information, we find very long monologues. And not only that, but I think we face the challenge that uh, we typically uh, criticize Job's friends because of the erroneous way in which they handle Job's suffering. 
But at the same time, this is not to say that everything that Job's friends is wrong or automatically incorrect. They say many true things. And so it requires a lot of careful attention to the text and to what the rest of the scriptures teach in order to discern where particularly Job's friends go astray. And so the premise also, I think, presents a number of challenges to us. The premise of the book, how can God make a wager with the devil? And yet it seems as though Job is the one who pays uh, the price. And even though Job has his life restored, one must wonder at what cost. Job's scars were undoubtedly deep and never ultimately completely healed, at least in this life. And nevertheless, as, as challenging as such things are, I don't think we should uh, pull back from uh, the book of Job. And though there may be some challenges before us, I think we should definitely look into it as intently as we can. Because ultimately, this is the nature of God's wisdom literature, the wisdom literature that we find throughout the scriptures. I think so often in life, we want the clarity and we want the simplicity of what we perceive as the teaching of the law. If you do A, then B. If A, then B. Very simple, uh, very uh, easy to understand. But yet, if you look intently at the law, even the law has its complexities. It has merely, I think, the appearance of simplicity. When you look, for example, at Solomon as he sought to apply the law uh, to the case where the two women were claiming to be the mother of the one child, there you find complexity in the face of the law. Or when you look at the many case laws scattered throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the Old Testament and the Covenant Code, there once again you find complexities there as well. But in the end, I think we should embrace wisdom literature and not fear it, because ultimately this is wherein we find Christ, as we do in the rest of the scriptures, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To study wisdom literature, beloved in Christ, is ultimately to look into the face of Christ. And so what I want us to do this morning, be it ever so briefly, is to look here at the book of Job, uh, particularly here at the fourth chapter for a few moments, and consider uh, one of the responses of Job's friends. I want us to briefly first look at Job's context. Secondly, consider the specifics of what Job's friend actually has to say. And then third, draw the connections that we find here uh, to Christ uh, elsewhere in the scriptures. In terms of Job's context, uh, I think we're probably most likely familiar with its opening scene. God commends Job to Satan because of his righteousness, Job's righteousness. And nevertheless, God ultimately allows Satan to sift Job, provided that he doesn't take his life. And then we find on the heels of Job's intense suffering, uh, his friends arrive to console him. Now, in one sense, as I was rereading this, uh, this material earlier, in fact, this is a book right now that my family and I are using for our devotions in the morning, it struck me that we may give Job's friends the short end of the stick. Uh, we associate them with really bad pastoral counseling. Now, I don't want to undermine the fact that, yes, they do give some really bad pastoral advice. 
But you have to notice here that they arrived at Job's living place, which had been destroyed, and they sat silently with him for a week. I think that certainly conveys the depths of their concern for him. They weren't just simply Pharisees passing by and saying, oh, look at this guy. They sat with him silently for a week. And so they also wept with him because of his intense suffering. I mean, when they came upon him, they could not recognize him. If you've ever been into a hospital where you see somebody after a car accident, I know what they're talking about. I remember making a pastoral visit on a couple that had been in a serious car accident, and it was, it was difficult to identify the person because they were so battered and bruised and broken. That's the nature of what they saw in Job. And so they wept with him and they were silent. And so I don't think we should automatically cast Job's friends as hostile or ignorant or somehow pharisaical. I think they were genuinely concerned, genuinely concerned for his well-being and for the state of his soul. And so we should keep this in mind as we look at one of Job's friends' opening statements, Eliphaz the Temanite, which brings us to our second point. Notice in verses 6 and following of chapter 4, Is not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. The bottom line to what Eliphaz the Temanite is saying is he's saying, Job, you sinned. God is punishing you. This is clear. And our immediate reaction to such a statement and to such an idea is, this is absolutely wrong-headed. I mean, we've had the privilege of being able to stand, if you will, in the divine court where God, in Job chapter 2, says, no, Job is a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil. So we know categorically that Eliphaz is wrong. But at the same time, we shouldn't defend, dispense with Eliphaz's observation all too quickly. We can't immediately write off what he says. His basic point in chapters 4 and 5 is that God uses suffering to bring sinners to repentance. In chapter 5, verse 17, which is the second half of Eliphaz's initial dialogue or monologue, he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. This is good theology. This is true. He echoes the book of Proverbs. My son, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I think Eliphaz sees his, son suffer, or his friend suffering and he says, and not only suffering, but he says, I, I, I want you to know you're not as innocent as you think. The Lord is disciplining you. Submit. I think it's the heartfelt cry of a friend who's genuinely concerned with the well-being of his friend. This is a sentiment that we find echoed in the New Testament. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I don't think Eliphaz is saying, you know, repent, you sinful slug. I think he's saying, son of God, your father is disciplining you. Submit to your father's discipline. He loves you. I think it's grave concern. So I don't think we can too quickly dismiss Eliphaz's theology. But given our knowledge of the big picture, I think we can definitely say it's been erroneously applied. So good, good doctrine, wrong context in which to use it. So what was Eliphaz missing? Why did he misapply good doctrine? Aside from the fact that, yes, he wasn't privy to the, the, the heavenly court conversation between God and Satan. This brings me to my third and final point, which is if we approach the law apart from Christ, we only end up with the covenant of works. We only have the if A, then B. If you're obedient, you will be rewarded. If you disobey, you will be punished. If you approach the law apart from Christ, that is all that you have. There is no other alternative category for Job's situation. All suffering must be categorically the result of willful sin. But what do you do? With Job, the righteous man who nevertheless suffers. Quite simply, if you have no place for Job, then you have no place for Christ, the truly righteous man who nevertheless suffered. Christ and his cross reveals the wisdom of God. And that is what we see revealed here, albeit in shadow form. We don't see it with the same type of clarity with which it emerges in the New Testament, but we see it nevertheless. In the frailty and weakness of the cross of Christ, God manifests his life-giving power and redemption to sinners. This is why Paul wanted to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. This, it, was, it was his divine vocation to manifest the sufferings of Christ, as Paul says. This is why he could say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Or this is why James could say, counterintuitively, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What Job tells us, what Paul tells us, is that there is a category of suffering that is not the direct consequence of sin, but rather... It is the prism through which God reveals his power in our weakness. He does that chiefly through Christ, but then secondarily, he does it through us, not for redemptive purposes, as he did in Christ, but ultimately for revelatory purposes, so that he can manifest the power of his wisdom and might in Christ as he reveals it in our weakness, in our suffering. I think in this respect, 
The way that God manifests his power is very counterintuitive to the way that we believe as human beings power should be manifested. We think that power should be manifested with the flexed arm, the clenched fist, the gritting of the teeth, the superior, a superior firepower. Not in weakness, not in suffering. Which is why Paul, I think, ultimately calls the gospel foolishness in the sense that when we preach it, we're preaching the weakness of the cross and its suffering and shame unto the power of, or unto people's salvation. As we look at God's wisdom literature in the scriptures, we have to say with the prophet Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As we conclude, I want you to remember several things. First of all, if you find yourself in the midst of suffering, your suffering could be as a result of one of three things. Could be the consequence of sin. You go and sinfully pick a fight with somebody and get punched in the nose, uh, and your nose broken. That suffering has nothing to do with the cross of Christ, but your sinful stupidity. I don't recommend it. Just to be clear. Secondly, it could be God's fatherly discipline to bring you to repentance. Indeed, the Scriptures teach us that our heavenly Father disciplines those whom He loves. Could be that when and if the church finds it necessary that because of your repeated brawling, it places you under church discipline and keeps you from taking the Lord's Supper. But that suffering, if you will, is unto repentance. It's because Christ wants to bring you back. It's because the Father wants to bring you back. But if you find yourself suffering and you cannot connect it to any of the consequences of your sinful actions, Say, for example, illness comes upon you inexplicably or great suffering such as in, in, in the life of Job. And you must remember that this is ultimately God manifesting Christ in you. He is manifesting his power in your weakness. This beloved in Christ is ultimately at the bottom, if you will, or at the heart of the wisdom of God Manifest in Christ and manifest in you. Glorifying the triune God. You have a divine calling, a vocation to manifest the weakness and suffering of Christ in your life. In the absence of clear evidence, never be quick to assume that suffering is the consequence of sin or the consequence or is, is or God's fatherly discipline. Never forget, you know, talking to someone at my church because she was convinced that somebody's cancer was as a result of hidden secret sin. Don't make those types of conclusions. Come alongside of, of, of those like Job and rather sit silently and weep with them than you would make rash judgments about what God is or is not doing apart from clear evidence. And if Christ calls you to take up your cross and follow him, then pray for the eyes of wisdom, pray for the eyes of faith, that you would be able clearly to perceive what God is doing in and through you. Because I think our immediate and first reaction must be is typically, what did I do wrong? And it might not be that you have done anything wrong. It may be that God has chosen you 
and identified you as somebody special to manifest his power and his might through your suffering and weakness so that you can cry out with the, uh, John the Baptist, when I am weak, he is strong. I close with the words, uh, uh, close with this prayer, and it's not my own, uh, but uh, nevertheless, I found it fitting. So let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought us to the valley of vision where we live in the depths but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, we behold your glory. Let us learn by way of paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, and your glory in our valley. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.